It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's interesting if you look at the order of things and you trust that God has a sense of humor, if you will, that this week we have lit our third Advent candle. We have talked about at, uh, the message of hope. We have talked about the message of peace. Well, the pink one on the back right is the message of joy. This week, as we made final preparations to get into this room this weekend, I would admit to you that there was enough chaos in my life that it's funny to me in an ironic kind of way that God in his wisdom had me preparing a message on joy. Hope that's not lost on you. Uh, I've also joked with some folks this morning that I may preach this message and look at you the way that you look at me sometimes. I got joy. Don't you feel it? But this morning is all about joy, the third week of Advent. And as we look at this, this I want to make sure if you're, if you're a person who follows along on the back of your bulletin, our very first point is that our joy is related to our happiness. And we often will talk about that. We will say joy and happiness are different. Joy and happiness are, are completely separate. But really, when we're talking about a biblical view of joy and happiness, they are very much linked together. You see, Kreef Davis defines joy uh, as delight that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Pain, let me try that again. Pain or pleasure. It runs deeper than that. Biblically, it is not limited by external circumstances. You see, joy is God's gift. And it can be experienced even amid extreme difficulty. When we're talking about we have joy in our life, what we are talking about is a quality of life. It's not something that is actually dependent on our emotions. In this way, joy is linked in a biblical sense to our happiness. For us, we simply define happiness as the state of being happy. Nothing is more disappointing to a researcher, to someone who is studying to look up a definition, and that's what you get. Corey, just so you know, happiness is the state of being happy. I thought, well, th thanks. I kind of knew that. But you move on and you say, well, what does it mean to be happy then? Well, we consider being happy as a description of feeling pleasure or contentment. So happiness and joy kind of go together. But in God's word, happiness is primarily associated with our disposition. It's associated with our character rather than an emotive response to our individual circumstances. For the believer of Jesus Christ, we are happy when we recognize we are favored by God. This favor leads to an emotion of great pleasure that we call joy. So how are people going through a hard time happy? How are they full of joy even though life around them is anything but pleasurable circumstances? How in the midst of chaos, and you've heard me say it before, I don't like chaos. I am type A plus. I, I like things in order. And the older I get, the more chaotic things get, the more I want to retreat into my own little cubby hole and sit there in a fetal position and suck my thumb because it is something that I just don't do well with. I, when I was in student ministry, Taylor, I, I love camp. Camp is my most, was always my most favorite trip of the year 
but not on leaving day. Because leaving day, you had to have all your ducks in a row. And everybody's excited and everybody's running here and everybody's running there. And I want it to be boom, 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 boom. Let's get on the bus and go. And everybody else is like, well, I need to use the bathroom. And, you know, it's, it's chaos. How in a world of chaos can we have this joy? Well, we can, like Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we can say we have this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure, Paul is talking about the gospel message. He's talking about the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love that comes from the advent, who comes from God. He's talking about these things that, are, that we hold on to, and he calls it a treasure. But it's in jars of clay. He refers to us as people, as things that are very weak and vulnerable and able to be broken. Would you admit this morning that you are able to be broken in this world? Uh, Okay, I'm by myself. Thank you, Angie. I appreciate it, Mike. That's good. Two of us, three of us are, are admitting that we're able to be broken. He says we have this, this treasure in this jar of clay. Why? Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not in us. Jesus says that in our weakness, he is made strong right? He says that in, in what we find ourselves being weak to accomplish, and we know we can't accomplish it ourselves. We know that. That means when it happens, it had to be the power of God working in our lives. But look what he says in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And it's all of this. We can stand under the pressures of this world. We can stand when everything in our own little sphere of influence and the thing that we call our life, when it seems upside down and turned over and crushing in on us, we can say that we are not going to be crushed. We are not going to be destroyed. We are not going to be forsaken because we have the power of God working in our lives. So our joy is based on God's saving acts. God's saving acts. And listen, friends, this cannot be overstated. We could say it every week and we ought to say it every week because we cannot overstate the fact that this is a mindset. It is an intentional decision that our eyes will not be set on momentary afflictions. We have to be consciously aware of our circumstances and our trials and how these things are going to come into our lives and affect us and even cause us to possibly lose our joy. But we have to know our joy is not based on how good we are, how talented we are, how charismatic we might be, how perky or chipper we might be naturally. Our joy is based on the work of God in our lives through the power of Jesus Christ. I don't know, people look at me and they see me in a setting like this and they go, oh, Kenan is the most extroverted person I've ever seen. And it's not true, Chuck. I saw you nodding at first, but yeah, it's not true. I am what they probably have come to refer to these days as an introverted extrovert. 
I, I can hang out with people like y'all that I know and love, and I can be life of the party, and we can get going. You take me into a room of people I don't know. Going to conferences by myself is not a good idea because I go sit in the corner because I don't know anybody. And just as much as I can be highest of highs, having so much good time, so much fun, everything is great. When life happens and I lose my joy, it takes me just as far the other way. Anybody else like that today? I, I struggle. And I want you to know I'm like you. I struggle with how to have this joy, how to maintain this frame of mind, how to continue in this. Well, in, in the storyline of the birth of Jesus, we find the word joy in two specific places. In Matthew's account, we find the word joy in the birth narrative concerning the wise men. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You see, it had been prophesied that the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the king of Israel would happen and it would be accompanied by a star. It's in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, when Balaam is prophesying and he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Most of the time when we think of Balaam, we think of a talking donkey. That's the, that's the story of Balaam most of us know. But he did prophesy this, and it's written in Numbers chapter 24. And I do not believe that this is by accident that this particular prophecy is found concerning Messiah in the Torah. In the first five books that we would call the Torah. Why, why do I say that? See, interestingly, these wise guys who came from another land, they came from an area of Mesopotamia. They came from an area of Babylon, the same area where Abram was called out from Ur of the Chaldees. He was sent out by God to go to a land that he knew not of. And you have to ask yourself, how do these wise men that's mentioned in Matthew, how would they know that a star that had appeared would be referring to a king for Israel. Well, do you remember at the middle, or right after the destruction of Jerusalem, that the people of Judah were taken into captivity into Babylon? They would have taken with them the Torah. They would have taken with them the, their scrolls that they had. They would have had their Bibles, if you will, with them. They would have also been talking about it for, for the 70 years that they were there. They would have been talking about the things that they knew. They were in captivity. So obviously they're going to be talking about these prophecies that are going to be uh, uh, answered for them so that this Messiah will come and get them out of bondage. They're going to talk about these things. And when Cyrus said, you can go back to Jerusalem, chances are some of those Torahs, some of those scrolls were left. And these wise men, these researchers, these guys who look, at, look to the stars for guidance, they would have been looking for anything they could find to understand what they were seeing. I don't think it's by accident that God had that prophecy in that book so that it could be heard by wise men who 450 some odd years later would make a trek 800 miles from the land they were from. Probably took them at least 40 days to get to where this baby laid. It was important 
for God to have them there. Why? Well, whether or not the wise men understood the importance of the event of the birth of this king and who he was and who this star pointed to, them arriving was a demonstration of what the angels had told the shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. It was good news. That's, we talked about that last week. That's a, a verb of evangelism. That's, that's the idea of sharing this good news. That's where we get our idea of sharing the gospel. This good news, the gospel is God's plan for all of humanity. In fact, it said for all the people, both Jews and Gentiles. The birth of Christ gives all people hope in a place that is sin sick and full of despair. His birth gives us peace to our souls when we are amid calamity and tragedy and general unrest. And his birth, the fulfillment of these prophecies that foretell the coming of Messiah to redeem and restore humanity back to God, this is good news. And it should give us all joy. You see, no matter what's happening in your life, when you are pressed and you are pushed on and the world is caving in around you and you're able to withstand, we have to remember it's all due to the saving acts of God. It is nothing in ourselves. It's not in our own power. Our biblical joy is found in our relationship with God through Jesus. And this is a comment on our quality of life. It's not simply an emotion that comes and goes. You see, our joy is linked to God's love and our obedience. Our joy is linked to God's love and our obedience. And you're saying, wow, Canaan, you've, girls, you still, you know, you haven't been preaching very long and you're already at your third point. Technically, there's a fourth one that's not written on your bulletin, so don't get too excited. Remember John chapter 15, when Jesus is given the metaphor of the true vine, he's telling them you, that, given the description of staying remaining and, and, and staying with and abiding in God, he says in verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That would be remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide. You will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We live in a very independent self-sufficient culture. We'll say things like, even if we don't say it out loud, I don't want to be obedient to others. I want to call my own shots. I want to be my own man. I want to be my own woman. I want to, I want to be the one who calls the shots for my life. I don't want to be dependent. I don't want to have to follow. I'm a full grown. Y'all know what I'm saying. Sometimes when we're reminded of the idea that we're supposed to be submissive to authority, like I did a couple of weeks ago and stood before y'all and said, don't miss what Peter and what Paul have said, that we're supposed to be submissive to authority. We, we take that and it kind of fills us with drudgery. We kind of walk away with the idea that, yeah, I get it. I'm supposed to be, so I'm going to do it because I have to do it. That's not a person who is obeying in joy friend of mine, uh, he and I are very close and he has had three rules for his children when they were growing up and they're all, but the last one's out of the house, but he, he's have this rule for them. You do what you're told, when you're told, 
with the right attitude. Isn't that where that would get most of us? It's one thing to do what you're told when you're told, but the right attitude, I'm going to unstack this dishwasher because I'm supposed to unstack this dishwasher. And that's kind of how we are when it comes to being obedient to God in some things in our lives. We don't want to do it, but we will do it. And it brings drudgery in our life. But Jesus dispels that wrong belief. He, he, he links our obedience to God's love. And then he says, when we have it in the right order, what follows that, the outcome is joy. Look at verse 10 again. There is an if-then statement here. Now, then isn't actually written there, but it's inferred. You can hear it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. At first glance, this seems to read like we are earning God's love by keeping his commandments. And I want to make sure that we don't walk away feeling that way because we honestly cannot earn God's love. It isn't a prize to be won. It isn't a trophy to put on a shelf. God loves us even when we were unlovable. So it's not a chance of trying to earn his love. What it is saying is we are showing that we love him. We are demonstrating our love for him when we follow his commands. And it's just as Jesus demonstrated his love for his father in heaven, as he kept his commands as well. We are more like Jesus when we are following his commands, just as he followed the commands of his father. Remember in the garden, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was fully man as well as he was fully God. He knew what was coming. He had seen crucifixion before. He knew what it entailed. He didn't want to do it, but he followed through. And here's the thing. According to this section of chapter 15, it's emphasizing how to remain connected to the Father through the Son. We are learning and staying in a way that we are going to remain empowered by him. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard about this is if you were to go out in the woods and you were to cut off a good green branch, you know, something that's got a lot of leaves on it. Well, it is now disconnected from its source of power, right? It's from its source of even better word, life. You bring it in here, I put it up on the stage for a couple of days, it's still going to be green. It's still going to look pretty good. Obviously, that's greenery around that's fake because it hasn't died in the last three weeks. You can even take it back out. You can take that branch and you can tape it to that tree. And for a few days, it's going to look good. But eventually, it's going to die because it's separated from its source of life. That's what Jesus is saying in this chapter. We can't be separated. According to Merrill Tenney, love is the relationship that unites the disciples of Christ as branches are united to the vine. Two results stem from this relationship, obedience and joy. Obedience marks the cause of their fruitfulness, but joy is the result. Joy logically follows when the disciples realize that the life of Christ in them is bringing fruit, something they could not do in their own strength. We love him, so we follow him and his ways. We don't follow him to earn his love. We follow him and do things his way because 
we love him. The outcome of our relationship with the Father through Jesus is based on his love, and it gives us joy. And not just joy. Look at verse 15 again, or verse 11 again. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Basically, Jesus is saying he wants us to experience the same complete joy that he has experienced in his own relationship with the Father. And that makes sense to us, or it should, because we do things that are similar. We will say things as well. If we have a good experience, if we have something that we believe others will benefit from, we're going to tell them about it. Like, you should eat at that restaurant. That is the best fish I've ever had. If you know the best fish, tell me where that is, because I like some good fish. Or we're going to go on to that vacation spot because that's the best vacation our family's ever had. Or we're going to uh, be able to go see that movie because that movie really spoke to me. How about this one? I want you to know the hope and peace and joy that comes from following Jesus because of the hope and joy and peace that I have from following him. So that leads me a little bit to a so what. That would be the unwritten one on the back of your bulletin. So what? This is great. We've talked about the hope of Christ. We've talked about the peace of Christ. Now we're talking about the joy. All of this is demonstrated in the birth and the baby that's laying in a manger. We've talked about the culmination of time and how the time before his birth and the time after his birth is all impacted by his birth, whether it's before Christ or the year of our Lord. It's all rotating. Life in general of this universe rotates around this birth. So what? I know it seems that I harp on this, and you hear this just about every week. And as much as I would like to stop at verse 11, I just, I just can't. You see, demonstrating our love for God by following his commands in such a way that leads to joy, it comes to a climax in verse 12. Look at verse 12. This, he says, is my commandment. He says, you want to show you love me, you follow my commandments. You follow my commandments like I followed the commands of my father before me. Just as I remain in his love, you remain in my love. And this, by the way, he says to his disciples, this is the commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. See, our joy is based on God's activity in our lives. It's based on his redemptive work on the cross. And that love he has for us, we give it right back to him. We love him because he first loved us. Time and time again throughout the Gospels and time and time again throughout the teachings of Paul and Peter and James, we learn in the New Testament that we demonstrate our love for him when we follow his commands. When we are obedient, we feel content, we feel whole, we feel right with him. We have a life that is characterized by joy. But that means the opposite is also true. And that is where I have been living my life this week. I mentioned that I thought it was ironically funny that this was the message I was working on this particular week. And I know other pastors will say, be careful, Keenan, how much you share with your congregation about your own struggles. But I believe we need to be in this journey together. 
And I want you to see that I'm right there with you. I'm not up on a pedestal, although technically I am. And I, you know, I told the joke this morning and said, well, it's only so the people in the back can see me. That's why I'm elevated up here. I am not some super Christian just because I carry the title pastor. I have issues. In fact, look at your neighbor and tell them you have issues. Okay, good. Some of you did that. Good. But this week I have been where many of you find yourself. This week as we worked to get into this building for various reasons and various circumstances, and I'm not going to go into all the details. You don't need to know the details, but just know that this week I have found myself frustrated due to circumstances. Frustration has led to anger, which led to more frustration. You all understand the pattern? Maybe it's because I've been studying this message of joy this week. So I'm a little extra sensitive to not only how we're supposed to have our joy, but also I'm very sensitive this week in particular to how we can lose it. Look at the pattern again. Joy is based on the work of God in our lives. Joy is dependent on God's love for us and our love for him being demonstrated in our obedience. Our obedience is summarized, Jesus summarized it himself in Matthew 22, love God with everything in you and love others as yourself. And he said it right here in John 15 as well. We love God and then we show our love for God by keeping this commandment of loving others. Love and obedience begets joy. Frustration begets frustration. Whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstances are, handling that situation, handling those circumstances wrongly builds frustration on top of frustration. It also leads to frustration in others. Remember our Sermon on the Mount series? When, when we talked about Jesus saying, if you look on a brother and you have anger toward him, you've murdered him already. And that we are supposed to, and it infers the idea, not only are we not supposed to be that angry with others, we are not supposed to cause them to be angry either. Folks, I caused people to be angry this week. I get it. And it flows over from this situation to that situation. It flows over from office work to remodeling work to family time to following that person at the roundabout. It just, it just and you all know what I'm saying, right? Y'all been there, whether it's any of the three roundabouts. Love and obedience begets joy, but frustration begets frustration. That leaves me, we're talking about me, leaves me on edge. It leaves me a raw nerve. I, this week, I was obviously not at my best mentally. I was obviously not at my best emotionally. And I was incredibly not at my best spiritually. Believe it or not, that last one impacts the other two more than we ever want to think it does. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all get it? Y'all with me? I know you've been there in your own life. 
I know your joy has been overwhelmed at times by what ends up being your own attitudes and your own pride. I have refused this week to use phrasing like the enemy was all over me. So let me just be honest. It had nothing to do with the enemy. It was all me. It was that guy I look at in the mirror. It's that guy that, that I struggle with in my own fleshly desires. It's that guy that I struggle with. And I'm not going to give the enemy enough power or credence to think he has that kind of rule over my life. But mostly, I am not going to be, have him be a scapegoat. Because what we do is we blame it on the enemy. And somehow that lessens our own personal accountability. It's not my fault. Remember Adam and Eve? It's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. She said, it's not my fault. It was the serpent who tricked me. And it's just passing the buck. It's not the enemy's fault that I had a pride issue this week or that I handled situations wrong or that me and a, me and a, a brother in Christ were at odds with one another. It's not his fault. See, that was my fault. And if you let it stack up long enough, and it stack up, and it stack up, and it stack up because you don't deal with it, you will, not can be, not could be, you will become hard and joyless and unhappy. You see, you can be saved and be a grouch. Being a grouch doesn't take away the, the guarantee of your salvation. But it sure does take away your joy. You can be saved and have a disposition that is characterized by grumpiness rather than joy. But there's good news. We've just studied how to get our joy back. You see, Jesus says our complete fullness of joy is found in our obedience. And sometimes our first act of obedience necessary to get back on this joy train is to follow our Savior's example and to forgive. Now, he personally did not need to ask for forgiveness of anyone. Can you imagine that? This, we talk about he was perfect. He never sinned. Do you realize that means not only did he never cuss, he never lost his temper, he never backtalked his mama as a teenager. He always did what he was supposed to do. He never did what he wasn't supposed to do. So that means our Savior handled every situation, every encounter correctly. That hit me this week. Wow. And that just gave me more praise for him that he handled all of his human emotions correctly. But he never had to ask for forgiveness. But our first act of obedience is to forgive and to ask those we have wronged to forgive us. But not just them. Just keep, it, keep the order in, in, in line. If we are wrong with a brother or sister or a family member, if we're wrong in the way we're treating one another, then that automatically makes us wrong with our father. We have sin in our life. And now we're not only putting up barriers between one another, now we've put up a barrier in this relationship. And in those moments, you cannot be experiencing joy. 
But God forgave us. So we forgive others. And then we also forgive ourselves. Sometimes that's where many of us stay. We beat ourselves up at night when we're trying to go to sleep. Remember last week we talked about Paul and he said that we are to think on certain things. We are to think on the things of God. He tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We often overlook, we always talk about God in our heart and Jesus in our heart, but we overlook Jesus in our mind. And we have to be intentional on the way we think. We have to be intentional on turning that page. So my question for you this morning as the band comes and we get ready to sing a song here at the end, a song that if it doesn't bring you joy, I need to see you after. Because I want to introduce you to Jesus. Do you want your joy back this Christmas? Amen. Look to the coming of Jesus and the joy he brings. He loves us. He redeemed us. We love him, so we obey him. And when we have it in the right order, our joy is full. It's complete. It's perfected in him.